You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. Welcome to the How to Hunt Deer podcast, which is brought to you by Tacticam. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and this week we've got an excellent episode for you. I was able to catch up with Mitchell Shirk from the Pennsylvania Woodsman podcast. That's another show here on the Sportsman's Empire podcast network. If you're not familiar with that show already, you should definitely go check it out. Mitch has tons of great guests on. Uh, man, there's a lot of big buck killers in uh, in Pennsylvania, so he has a lot of those folks on. He also talks quite a bit about food plots and habitat improvement, and uh, Mitch is just an all-around good dude. One of my favorite people that I get to work with regularly uh, as part of this network. So, uh, yeah, you should go check that show out for sure. But I had Mitch on this episode to continue our series talking about food plots. Now, Mitch is a row crop agronomist. That's a big fancy word. I have him go into a little bit of what that means, but basically... He concerns himself with increasing and improving the yield of farmers' crop fields. That translates, obviously, really well into the food plot world, and Mitch is an absolute food plot nut. So I wanted to go into, all right, Mitch, what do we need to do to make sure we have healthy, vibrant food plots? So we get all into the topic of soil testing, how important it is, how to go about doing it, and uh, then what to do after you get your soil test results back. Great episode with Mitch. So glad he could come on. As we jump into this show, big thanks to our partners. First up, I'm going to talk about Huntworth. Uh, They are also a sponsor of the Pennsylvania Woodsman podcast. I have been super impressed with Huntworth gear. They sponsor uh, Mitch's show, the Pennsylvania Woodsman podcast. He has loved their gear. They sponsor the Missouri Woods and Water podcast. They love their gear. And, uh, man, I just know a lot of folks at this point who are using Huntworth camo and could not be happier with it. I personally am a big fan of the Tarnan pattern. I know some of the other guys use a couple of different patterns. I have found the Tarnan to work best for me. Another thing that some folks don't really realize is that Huntworth also makes some backpacks. So they've got their bigger backpack called the Hickory. They've got a smaller backpack called the Lodi. They are both fantastic. I really, really like the Hickory. It's got a frame on the back of it, which gives it a little bit more structure and helps it carry really, really nice. If you're like me, you're carrying in camera gear, extra clothes, all of that good stuff. So go check them all out, huntworthgear.com. Next up, Onyx. Man, turkey season is officially over here in Georgia. And uh, you know what? That hurts a little bit to say, but it does mean that now I can pivot and be focused totally on whitetails that means it is time to get some map scouting in if you don't already have a a gps or mapping app on your phone i highly recommend you go check out onyx if you are already using a gps or mapping app on your phone i recommend you check out onyx anyway i think you'll like it better i think uh i think it stands out especially when it comes to user friendliness the number of features that it has and accuracy. I've just really, really enjoyed Onyx. You can go get a seven-day free trial if you just look them up on the app store of your choice. You can learn more or have any of your questions answered by going to onyxmaps.com and get to work doing some of your uh, late spring, early summer scouting with Onyx Hunt. And then last but not least, Tacticam. They are the title sponsor of this show. With the close of turkey season, a couple of things are being put away, but my Tacticam cameras are not because now that turkey season's over, it is time to pull out the bow and get shooting in the backyard. One of the things that I'm going to do is have my stabilizer mount with my 6.0 camera in the bow or on the bow at all times while I'm practicing this summer. 
that's going to do a couple of things for me. It's going to get me used to the feel, uh, what my bow feels like having that camera on there. Even though the camera is a little bit lighter, it does add just a little bit of weight to the front. Uh, and also, I've got a bad habit of dropping my arm after I take the shot. And I want to make sure that I've broken that habit by the time uh, October, November, or uh, you know, deer season in general rolls around. If you're considering filming your hunts this year, I think Tacticam gives you the simplest, most cost-effective way of doing that. I know a lot of guys like to use their phone, but man, I really like to have my phone on me. I want to use my Onyx. I want to uh, check my email or, or whatever. I want my phone on me to take pictures and you know all that good stuff rather than having it on a camera arm out in front of me or something like that or attached to my weapon where I can't really get to it to use it. Go check them out, Tacticam.com. They've got the 6.0. They've got the Solo Extreme. They have all kinds of mounts and adapters to help you get that thing fixed to your weapon or uh, up on a tree branch behind you or wherever you want it to be, on your head, on your shoulder. they got all kinds of mounts and adapters. Go check them all out, Tacticam.com. Now let's jump into the conversation, talking about soil tests with Mitchell Shirt. Joining me for this week's episode of the How to Hunt Deer podcast is Mitchell Shirk from the Pennsylvania Woodsman podcast. Mitch, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me, Josh. I appreciate it. Yeah, so we've we've talked a number of times, and I know you've been on this show uh, as far as the deer camp episodes that we did. Mm-hmm. And I know I've had you on the Wisconsin Sportsman uh, once or twice, right? Right, yeah. Uh, have, have you done a regular episode of How to Hunt Deer yet with me? Nope. This is this is, uh, this is this oh, is the first one, my friend. Dude, it what a crying shame. For those of you who don't know, Mitch is one of those guys that like eats, sleeps, and breathes whitetails. Uh, if you haven't listened to the Pennsylvania Woodsman podcast already, you really, really need to. Mitch does not just cover stuff from PA. Um, much much like the rest of us. I mean, we all kind of try to to exceed the boundaries of our state, but. Um, you know, Mitch, you talk a lot about just really relevant information for pretty much anybody hunting, especially hunting whitetails in the East. Um, sure, so try I, to. I think that that's huge. <laughs> you know, even me, like living here in Georgia now, I find a lot of what you talk about, um, you know, really relevant. And so um, I think folks should go give that show a listen. Uh, but Mitch, man, why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, yourself for those who maybe aren't familiar with you, a little bit about the show that you host and maybe kind of what makes you tick as a whitetail hunter. I feel like there are different kinds of whitetail hunters. Um, Tony Peterson did a good episode the other day on trying to figure out like what kind of whitetail hunter you are. And it really got me thinking, you know, about what kind of hunters different people are and kind of like how you identify and what's the way you enjoy hunting whitetails as opposed to the way other people do. So, you know, give me the rundown of who you are and, and maybe what kind of hunter you consider yourself. Yeah, sure. So again, Mitchell Shirk. I'm from Southeast Pennsylvania. Um, I am a row crop agronomist with a third party consulting company. Um, I work with, um, I don't know how many different clients, but probably my client base is probably looking at somewhere between 15 and 17,000 acres of, of row crops. And uh, yeah, I've been on the network with the Pennsylvania Woodsman podcast show since uh, spring of 2021. In fact, um, you know, as we're speaking right now, this is like right around that anniversary time for two years for me. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, I, I would say whitetails are the thing I enjoy the most, but you know, I try to cover as much about, uh, just outdoor recreation as possible. There's a lot of things that I'm, uh, I'm learning that I, I know diddly squat about, and I've had a lot of cool conversations on my show with people. Um, talking about a host of, of different topics, but yeah, whitetails, turkey and, and black bear in Pennsylvania are the things that really get me going. That's for sure. Yeah. And you've, you're, you're an interesting mix. It, it seems like, because, um, not only are you heavy on the like habitat side of things, you, you know, a lot about food plots, you love dabbling in habitat improvement. Um, but you also dig the big woods and big woods hunting and all that that means and trying to figure that puzzle out. And, and it seems like and from conversations that we've had in the past, that's getting your, your attention and your, your passion a little bit more with each passing year. So tell me a little bit. I mean, you've kind of got your feet in, in two different worlds as a whitetail hunter. Well, yeah, it's just kind of, it's, it's kind of shifting gears for me a little bit. So my, my whole first part of my 
let's just call this my deer hunting career. Um, I did majority of private land hunting. Um, I've been blessed to have family members who I have great relationships with and love to death. And I've, I've been fortunate enough to do a lot of private land things with them and, and on the, the properties that, uh, that we have to hunt. And, uh, gosh, I've learned so much. It's, it's been the driving force of my passion. They're my favorite people to hunt with. And, uh, yeah, I love it. But, you know, so just things have changed over the years. Um, I still love doing that, but time, sometimes it's, it's up for new challenges. Uh, my, my dad is somebody who is, it was nowhere, he's nowhere near into hunting the way that I am. But uh, he loves to go to our deer camp, and our deer camp's in northern Pennsylvania. We don't have the, the deer density, so to speak, but there's something about hunting at camp. Big woods, uh, heritage, history, getting away for a week of deer camp. And I don't know, sometime, you know, college, uh, a little after college, that fire got relit under me, and it's probably a combination of doing things at camp with those guys um you know let's face it now in in the world of social media i mean you're not cool unless you shoot a, a big buck on big woods public land you know if i feel like everybody asks if what, did you shoot that buck on public land well what does it matter <laughs> um but no like there's probably part of that there's uh there's just a number of factors in, in different challenges new new experiences and places so yeah I, i'm trying to plus the thing i learned too is um you know, you can really find yourself doing the same things over and over again if you don't branch out. So, I, I, like I said, I was I was trying to go for some new experiences, new challenges, and learn more about deer than I already thought I know because I, I feel like it's so easy to get locked into a certain way of hunting or a certain place or whatever, and then, you know, you you think you, you, you got it figured out and then go to a new turf and get your tail kicked. So I'm kind of interested in that. So a whole mix of that things. I don't know if that answered your question or not. Yeah, man, absolutely. And, uh, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to hit record on my screen here too. I, I also record the video on these and, uh, sure. I, I didn't hit that earlier. My audio is recording. Thank goodness. Um, so I, 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 I'm at this stage in my life where, uh, we are seriously considering buying ground and okay. trying to figure out what does that look like? So our big question right now we, we know kind of what we're looking for in a piece of property. We know what we want the neighborhood to look like. We know, you know, long-term aspirations, what, how we want to set a property up regarding, you know, where a home site would be and where we want to be able to access and like driveway and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, but we're, we're trying to figure out, you know, what town or state even we're going to buy in. And one of the concerns that comes up for me as I think about deer hunting, you know, my own ground and getting more into the habitat piece, um, I am concerned about becoming uh, the kind of hunter that just has his spot and knows, all right, if I wait until October 31st, I can go hunt this food plot and I'm probably going to get a shot at a, at a nice buck. Um, and, and I say that because of an experience that I had turkey hunting. I got access to a really nice turkey property and I killed a bird out there. And then the next season comes and I kill a bird out there. And then the next season comes and I kill a bird out there. And I found myself, like you said, just doing literally the same thing year after year, season after season and sitting in the exact same spot. And it's a little bit different because I wasn't doing anything to, to improve the habitat on this property or anything. It was just a permission piece, but I, I also never want to uh, lose that piece where, you know, I'm stretched and I'm, I'm growing. Does that make sense to you? It absolutely makes sense because, let, let's face it, you just, you just said earlier in our conversation, you're talking about um, what kind of hunter you are and, the, your, you know, what you favor to and, and this and that. And at the end of the day, regardless of where you end on that spectrum, who cares? It's all about what we do want to yeah. do to have fun. If I want to go and hunt on my private land that I've put a food plot out and I've done habitat work and this and that too, if I want to hunt that and I'm going to shoot a buck that makes me happy on that property and I've got it figured out, that's great. Um, yep. If I want to go to deer camp and sit at the same tree opening day for the rest of my life, and if that's what makes me happy, then that's what I, I'm going to do. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I Like, I love competition. Competition breeds a desire to 
get better because if you're competing with somebody, you're trying to up your game, right? And if yep. you're upping your game, you're doing everything you can to better yourself, better your knowledge base, your skill set. But at the same time, there's a, there's a there's a place in hunting where that caps off in my mind. Who cares if Josh Raley is shooting bigger bucks than Mitchell Shirk? Josh Raley is the only one who's going to care about that. Like, yep. That's just the fact of the matter is because, you know, you, you got that awesome looking buck hanging behind your wall that I am, you know, super proud of you for. But at the end of the day, you're the only one that looks at that and really cares at the end of the day. And, yep. and it's all about what's going to what's going to keep you happy. So, like, you know, I can completely relate to what you're having. I'm just trying to pursue something that's fulfilling. Um, you know, I shot a buck last year on the, the the private land property that I've hunted my whole life. And, you know, I wouldn't change anything. I would shoot that deer over again. It was a, a great hunt. It was a great experience. But that was the first time I shot a buck. And when I was done, I thought, man, something's missing. I just didn't feel that my work into this deer was representative of the end result. Like, I didn't mm. feel... And, and this comes back to just my, my timeline and work schedule and family and this and that, blah, 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 blah. I just didn't feel like I had as much invested into that deer um, as I had other deer in the past. And it that clicked for me. So then I started thinking, well, if I can't put as much emphasis and time into this property as the people I hunt with, um, maybe I need to do something a little bit different. It's not that I, I want to. It's just eh, It's just a little bit of a different chapter. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. And uh, I had a similar experience on my dad's place a couple of years ago. The last, uh, last buck I shot with a rifle, um, you know, we had, this, we had this thing down to a, to a science. I mean, this deer was coming out at the exact same time every single day into this food plot. And I go out there, second weekend of the season, buck walks out exactly where he's supposed to at the exact time he's supposed to. In fact, I think he was five minutes early on that particular day and I shot him and he goes down and I'm like, man, I, I, the, the work that I put in for that buck. Now, granted, I put in a lot of work the years leading up to that, that Mm -hmm. didn't, that didn't pay off. So, so maybe, maybe it's not fair to say that the work didn't match the, the deer, but, but I, I get what you're saying. I get kind of the experience that you had and I think what I want to make sure is that I'm always I'm always doing both, right? Like I've always I always want to have a place where I can go out and have a great enjoyable hunt. I always want to have a place where I can go out and count on seeing deer, count on having a good opportunity at a mature buck, uh, be able to take my kids out. I mean, part of what I do for a living is go to landowners' properties and help them design and set up their property so that they can have excellent hunting. But I also don't want to lose that piece where I just drop myself on some random piece of public ground and say, all right, where's he at? I've got nine days or I've got 10 days or five days. You know what I mean? Like I, I never want to lose that piece. Well, yeah. And even if it's, even if you just translate that into bouncing into a new private piece, like I, uh, oh, absolutely. I've got a kind of a, a new project right now. A, a, it's, this is only going to be year two of me hunting it. And uh, year one was fun. I learned a lot, learned about some of the deer. And, man, I got some deer in my mind that I really want to play the chess match with. And, uh, you know, it could be that same old length story like you just said where you're you're using cameras, you're, you're, you're doing habitat improvements and manipulations to try to time when to kill that deer. But to me, that's still fun because it's a new challenge. It's a new deer. It's a new area. It's a new a lot of things. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I still... If I had to pick one hunt out of the entire year, my, my one hunt that I would want to do is when we get together at my cabin the first week of our deer season. The first week of our deer season, there's an overlap in the unit we hunt where a bear is open. So we can we get a group of guys together and hunt together, and uh, you shoot a buck or a bear, whatever you got a tag for. And I tell you what, I don't have more fun hunting throughout the year than that you know that those two three days that i'm with those guys so i just look forward to that every year and i don't want that to change yeah yeah that's awesome well man let's uh let's shift gears just a little bit you mentioned a moment ago that you're a row crop agronomist Mm -hmm. uh what the heck does that mean yeah that's a great question (laughs) I, i talk about that with my boss a lot and i said to him one time i said do you 
He said, people come up to you and ask you, what do you do? How do you explain that to him? He goes, well, if it's a landowner on a property, I'm at, he goes, I just tell them that I'm the people that looks for bugs and weeds. He goes, that's the easiest thing that they can relate to. Nice. Um, but nice. uh, no, really what what my job is from a third-party consultant aspect is, is trying to help make the hard decisions, you know, mm. make the decisions of um, what to apply, when to apply, how to apply, um, you know, Things that can just cause you a lot of anxiety when you've got money on the table um, and do it from an agronomics perspective. You know, I don't have any skin in the game as far as I'm selling a product to somebody. I'm just giving my unbiased opinion of what does a plant need to maximize its potential. And, uh, you know, we do that. So, so like, you know, our services kind of look like we, you know, we do soil testing for for growers, have a meeting with them, uh, discuss the fertility in their soil, how we're going to manage that fertility, what their cropping structure looks like, what their cropping rotation is going to be, how we're going to implement that, what, you know, fertilizers, manures, chemicals, and you know, just try to maximize uh, plant growth in, in fields and uh, therefore profitability and yield. So, um, it's all about uh, it's all about really really good fields, which uh, translates well into food plots for me. Yeah, man. So I, I gotta know, like, how do you how do you get into that field? Like, were you like in college and you're like, you know what, I really want to be, I want to be the guy that tells people how much poop to put on their field. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> so I'll I'll tell you the honest to goodness truth how it happened. Uh, this was uh, one of those spin the dial and wherever it lands, that's where it's going to be situation. So. Um, when I was 18 years old, I had no clue what I wanted to do. Um, all I knew is I like deer, I like deer hunting and I like deer management. So I'm going to do something with biology and, you know, I got a biology degree, environmental science degree, and I was going down the, the road of trying to find profession in that. And I had a seasonal job and when that ended, it was during deer season. And I'll never forget, it was Thanksgiving dinner. I was with my wife's grandmother and her uh, her nephew has a job has has this company that said maybe he could have a job for you and I kid you not I literally you know met my wife's grandmother's nephew and and he we had a great conversation he said you know would you be interested in ag and I had a you know I had an, a little bit of an ag background but I mean I was not uh, thinking that I was going to get into row crop management in any case in point but uh, had some conversations with him what the job would look like. Uh, started kind of uh, shadowing him and just took off with there. And it turns out that uh, I kind of really like it. Um, I'm fairly good at it, and uh, it, it relates really well to things I'm interested in. So, yeah, it was uh, it was not by choice. It was kind of a, a godsend moment of for, for both of us that, at that matter. So, yeah, wow. it, was, it was interesting. Man, that's awesome. I, lo- I love how – it's it's always fun to hear how people got to where they are in in what would seem like a pretty unconventional way, right? Like you, this wasn't like the thing you had on your on your list to do, but you ended up doing it, and you know it's turned out pretty well for you. So let's talk now about the carryover from what you do day to day to what you're passionate about, which is deer hunting, and obviously mm-hmm. food plots is a is a big part of that for you. So tell me about that carryover and how that helps you when you're making decisions, especially when it comes to food plots. Yeah, well, uh, that's, uh, man, you left an open-ended one there. I'll try to keep this as simple <laughs> as possible. To me, in private land hunting, um, there you know, there's so many aspects of habitat management, habitat improvement, hunting strategy, and rabbit holes you could go down. For me, I think the thing that's had the greatest impact in a positive way is food plots. Um, I've seen food plots just do incredible things. I've seen food plots improve my hunting to the point where it's put some of the best deer on my wall, some of the best deer experiences with my hunting buddies. Um, It's also taught me how not to hunt. It's also taught me what I've done wrong. Uh, it's, It's taught me a lot in that sense. But food plots just to me have so much value. I personally don't have as much interest hunting a private land piece of property without putting food plots on it as it would to hunt public land. Like I just assume go hunt public land, find a good spot than having a private land piece of property, but I couldn't put a food plot on it. I mean, that's, that's honestly the truth. Now I understand there's good private land pieces. You don't need it, but it's, that's just trying to emphasize how important they are to me. Sure. So, uh, with that said, uh, 
quality is quality is everything. And I think in order to to have quality, you got to start with the basics, and uh, that's that's coming down to managing uh, pests and managing fertility and keeping soil healthy to grow the best plants possible. Yeah, and and it's that point right there where. Uh, I wanted to have you specifically come on the show because you understand soil health, you understand fertility. Mm -hmm. Um, When it comes to planting food plots, there are a lot of really flashy things out there. There's uh, planting methods, which, you know, certain kinds of planting, no-till drills Mm -hmm. are extremely popular right now, or no-till methods of planting, extremely popular right now. Uh, A lot of people want to talk about um, either, you know, fertilizer and lime and and getting, getting everything dialed in just right. Uh, a lot of people want to talk about, um, you know, location and placement. We've covered that over the last couple of weeks. We've kind of been doing a series on food plots. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people, the big, where the money's at, right, the money maker for folks is the food plot seed blend, right? Everybody <laughs> wants to know what what can you sell me in a bag that I can throw out and it's going to magically fix my hunting property by bringing all the bucks to where I want them to be. There is a crucial piece in the middle of all this. And all, all that stuff's great. All that stuff's really, really good Absolutely. and really, really important to think about and plan for. But there's an important piece that I think a lot of folks miss out on. And I think it's probably to blame for the majority of food plot failures. And that is not getting a soil sample. That is Bingo. Understanding, Bingo. The, understanding what's going on beneath the surface. So <clears throat> first of all, make the case that soil samples are important because here, here's how I grew up, right? I grew up, uh, we had 3,600 acres that we leased. So tons of acreage, right? We had probably 40 to 45 food plots scattered across this property. I mean, just massive property in the hill country of Alabama, beautiful place. Um, but we would just throw down some triple 13 fertilizer and a couple hundred maybe a ton or maybe a thousand pounds of lime per acre. Um, and we would just call that good. And some plots grew really well and were very attractive to deer. Some plots grew well and weren't very attractive to deer and we couldn't figure out why. And then some plots wouldn't grow at all. And we always scratched our head and thought, man, maybe we should just stop planting this because it's not, nothing's coming up. Um, make the case, man, that we should have been doing uh, soil samples or should have been taking soil samples. Yeah. Well, um, one thing I always like to reference is scripture as much as possible. And there's one, there's one scripture that rings true to me and that's build your house on the solid rock, which is Christ. And I truly believe that the foundation of a good food plot program, um, the, the, the foundation, the rock, the stone you build your house on is a soil sample because yeah. it's something that is so simple and yet, uh, has such a great impact. It, it, it's, the, it's the direction to steer in making decisions. It's it's one of the only pieces of information that you can get um, without uh, without seeing plant life. You know, when when you uh, you know when, when you have something growing there, you know with enough knowledge and experience, you can look at that plant life and you can kind of get understand what its responses are and what it needs it. But you can take dirt in wintertime when there's nothing growing there, and get a sample and you can get an idea of what could be lacking in the soil and uh you know just to give you an idea soil is one of those things that um it's an investment like anything else if you invest into your soil and you have a long-term approach with your soil it will respond over time and all those things you were talking about with you know no-till and seed blends and different fertilizers i'm not going to bash any of that because they all have their place but the thing that you need to keep in mind whenever you're making a food plot is you need to just get the facts and you don't need somebody's biased opinion to make those decisions for your food plot you can get that information from any extension agency office in the country. You know, you know, for, for the mid-Atlantic region where I'm at, you know, Penn State extension office, anybody can walk into that office, uh, spend $20, get a soil sample bag, uh, send their, their sample off to a lab, go out and pull a sample and get the results back. And you're going to get the, the, the pH levels. You're going to get the phosphorus levels, the potassium levels, all that good stuff. And then you're going to tell them what you want to plant and they're going to give you recommendations based on what you give them. And, you know, 
the thing that's important with somebody like that versus um, a company that sells product is they don't have any skin in the game. They're not selling you product. They're not selling you a fertilizer or a herbicide or seed or anything like that and, and, and push anything on you like that. They're just trying to bring your soil into an optimum range based on your geography. And that's what's really important. You know, for our area, if a Let's just say the optimum pH in our area, which is, is around a 6.5 pH. The phosphorus level, we'd want at a 50 part per million range and a 150 part per million potassium range. Those recommendations are going to come back with fertilizer and lime to try to bring that soil into that spectrum. And it's going to be the most cost-effective way possible. So I think that's uh, that's kind of important. we we got to look at it as building the foundation and then plugging you know, either that or you look at it as you know what's the lowest hole in the bucket in your in your uh, your soil profile and then uh, expand upon it from that hey guys just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the how to hunt deer podcast is brought to you by tacticam makers of the best point of view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers they're on the cutting edge making user-friendly cameras to help the everyday outdoorsman share your hunt with friends and loved ones Their new 6.0 camera has a ton of upgraded features this year, but the one I'm most excited about is the new LCD touchscreen. In my mind, that's a total game changer. And one area Tacticam really shines is with their mounts and adapters that are made with the sportsman in mind. If you've tried to film your hunting and fishing excursions in the past, you know how frustrating it can be to get an action camera aimed just right or get it attached to your weapon or in a good spot for a second angle. Well, Tacticam makes all of that a breeze with their line of accessories. This fall, I'll be using their stabilizer mount on my bow with the 6.0 camera and their bendy clamp paired with the 5.0 wide camera for a second angle and to make sure I don't miss any of the action. To learn more and check out their full line of products, head over to their website, Tacticam.com. Share your hunt with Tacticam. You mentioned there the long-term approach. I think that's something where a lot of folks can go wrong. Maybe they plant a food plot in a spot and it doesn't turn out like they wanted it to that year. So next fall, they're on to something different, and they'll switch up the blend, or maybe they switch up the timing at which they plant. But uh, there's a lot of stuff. You've really got to have that long-term approach. Like, you've got to have a long-term plan for the way that you're going to be planting these plots, and a huge part of that is taking these soil samples. I run all of mine through the University of Georgia because, hey, I'm here in Georgia right now, and and you're right. So they're not trying to sell you anything. There's no product involved. You know, it's not the... I won't say the company. There's a company out there that has great soil test kits that you can, you know, get it. It's a little bit more expensive than doing it at your local extension office. And they're right. going to, uh, they're going to obviously try to point you towards their, uh, their products afterwards. Tell me a little bit about exactly what the soil test is trying to assess for. There's a lot that goes on there. Um, and, and some, some tests are actually a little bit more in depth than others. Uh, and give you a little bit more information than others. What are the big things that are really important in your mind? Yeah, so uh, let's just talk on my, my job, my, my daily job, and the samples that we take for our farmers. Um, when we send a sample, I send the basic package out. And what the basic package is going to include is going to be pH, buffer pH, phosphorus, potassium, magnesium, calcium, your base saturations, your CEC, and your organic matter. And that's it. It's a bare bone sample. It's got two major macronutrients, the pH levels, which the pH is nothing more than a logarithmic scale that is measuring hydrogen and aluminum in your soil. And uh, it, it's, it's measuring, you know, how much of you know, free floating aluminum and hydrogen are going on in your soil. And that's, you know, a whole other topic of conversation. But anyway, um, those are the biggest uh, the, the biggest factors that you have in your soil. Um, can you get, can you get more in-depth samples? Absolutely. You can, you can get, uh, packages that have nitrate samples, which are going to, uh, get different, different forms of nitrogen available in your soil that will break down at a certain point or are plant available at that time. You can get micronutrients, zinc, boron, manganese, molybdenum, you know, you name it. Um, and, and that's not, that, that's, that's, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, but 
when, when you talk about moving the needle on the scale, the things that are going to have the most impact are those first three things we just talked about, the pH, the phosphorus, and the potassium. Those macro elements, that like first of all, your pH is going to have the biggest impact in saying what nutrients actually move into the plant, what, what is the soil going to allow to move into the plant, and then the P and K is going to be the most volume uh, the, the highest nutrient concentration pulled from the soil to that plant. I mean, you're talking percentages of those micros compared to that. So if we can't get the basics right first, we have no business talking about all that extra stuff I just brought up. Yeah, man, that's really, really good. Let's let's talk just a little bit about, um, you know, obviously there, there's the there's the, the pH side of things, and then you're, you're talking about your fertilizers and that kind of stuff you want to try mm-hmm. to bring in. Um, if you had right now, here, here's, here's what I'm dealing with and I'll just be totally transparent, right? I'm working with landowners who are in shock, um, at how much fertilizer prices have gone up, Mm. uh, and in shock at how much, you know, lime prices have gone up and just like, oh my good man, this, this is a lot, this is going to be a substantial financial investment, um, for somebody who's like, man, I want to do the soil test and I want to see what's there, but holy cow, I can't afford to do that much when it comes to my soil. Uh, what would you tell them? Um, I, w- I would say you're probably wasting your money otherwise. Because if, if you're looking at saying, I want to grow a food plot, but I don't want to spend all this money investment, well... It's it's one of those things you do or you don't because why in my mind why would you want to spend money on something that uh, isn't going to be maximum potential? I mean I, I look at the money that we spend on equipment nowadays with hunting. You know so many of us have the top end bows, top end stands, clothing, yada yada yada. Spend a ton of money on that, but we'll cut corners on something that could have such a great impact on our hunting strategy and and. and hunting capabilities for for the deer we want to approach so to me i don't think you can afford to but at the same time um think about your food plots are, are they is the property and is the food plot something that you can manage long term or is it short term and that's going to that's going to have a greater impact on how you manage that food plot let's just say i pull a sample on a farm that um i have access to for the rest of my life, uh, Lord willing, with my family. It's family owned. And I can manage that as long as I want. Um, There's nothing saying I have to address every single thing to a T on that soil sample in year one. I might space it out and manage it over time to slowly build. Uh, The same conversation, let's say you're on a lease and it's a one-year lease and you want to grow a food plot. Well, I wouldn't want to spend, um, let's just say your pH is a 5.8 and you're calling for two tons per acre of lime. Well, that two tons per acre of lime is going to cost a a pretty good chunk of money depending on that size of food plot. And limestone, depending on the type of limestone you use, but limestone on average is not going to break down very much in the first six months. So you could be putting that lime on and not even retaining the benefit for that food plot in year one, and you are, you're already on that property in one year. So th- there's things like that to consider when you're making those decisions of fertility. Um, I could keep going on and on, Josh. You'll have to stop me when you want to stop me. But like the a food plot, let's just say you're, you're, it's a new property and you think this is the location for a food plot, and it turns out it's not. Well, do you really want to invest all that money into that location if you're not even sure that's the right spot on your property. Like there's, there's, there's so many avenues and there's more than one way to skin a cat. But when you're talking about managing soil for, for the right location, something you can invest in, it will return in the long run. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, man. You, you just made me think of, uh, there's a landowner that I've been working with and his, um, according to, to the plan that we kind of drew up for this property, there's a spot that would be phenomenal for a food plot i mean absolutely phenomenal but but given the the given the terrain given what's there right now i was like this soil here is going to be the most acidic soil on your property like this is Mm -hmm. this is going to be the most acidic place and we got the the test back and it recommended like four and a half tons per acre of of lime and it's like oh my goodness how do we even begin to put that much out because this isn't a place where you're going to get any kind of equipment 
Um, mm. This is going to be this is going to be bagged in. And uh, so then then you have to step back and ask the very real question: like, can it even be here? Then you know, is is this something we have to go back to the drawing board and say, and eh, maybe we should consider moving this to somewhere else because that's just that's simply too much. Um, talk to me a little bit about the process of taking a soil sample because. Um, there are some things that you can do to make your test more uh, reliable and, and, and not screw the pooch when it comes to actually doing the work. Like if you're going to put in the time and effort to, to take a soil sample from, uh, let's say, a food plot that exists already or a potential food plot site, what are you doing to make sure that what you're getting in that test, in those results, is a good representation of what's actually there in the dirt? Yeah, that's a very important point that you just bring up there because you gotta you gotta figure when you take a soil sample. So, um, if you think about uh, six inch depth of topsoil, six inches deep of topsoil times one acre is two million pounds of soil, and we are literally taking a bucket full of dirt, mixing it up. We're grabbing a handful of dirt. We're putting it in a bag, sending it to the lab. And the lab is going to then of that handful, take a teaspoon. And that's what they're going to use to represent your entire field. So is there a margin, is there a, a little bit margin of error in that? Well, absolutely, because it's a very small sample size. But at the same time, the important thing is to get a representative sample of your location. So, you know, when I take, um, when I take samples for, for ag fields, you know, they're pretty nice fields to work with, not a lot of rocks for the most part. I use an aluminum soil probe, right? It's, it's you know, like an inch and a quarter diameter or something like that. Uh, get six-inch cores. I usually pull about 15 cores per field, you know, give or take acreages. That all depends. Put them in a bucket, mix them up, break up all those clumps, get it all uniform in that bucket. Then I'll just take a, about, like I said, about a handful, put it in a bag, send it to the lab. Food plots, on the other hand, my experience uh, in, in our neck of the woods is so many food plots get put into places that are back corners, log landings, old logging roads, places that just have nothing but rock and compacted soil and stuff like that. So a lot of the time what I'll end up doing then is I'll, I'll take, a, I usually have a a shovel, like a four-foot uh, spade shovel in my car, and I'll go out and I'll dig like an eight-inch hole, and then from there, I'll go, you know, I'll pull that, that spade back about an inch, and then I'll, you know, jam the shovel into that inch as much as I can. That way, I get a representative layer of that soil profile, and then I'll take that layer and put it in a bucket, and I'll do that a couple times in a food plot just to make sure I've got a good representation of that food plot. If, if you're doing that in a, let's just say your food plot's one acre, which keep in mind, guys, you know, another thing hunters and food plotters do a terrible job of is estimating the size of a food plot. Keep in mind, oh 43,560 yes. square feet is an acre. Now keep that those number. That's an important number. But, um, I, you know, one acre food plot with a spade shovel like that, I might do that six different locations in a food plot. And uh, you just try to get the best representation there and then send that sample to the lab. Yeah, man, you'd, you, you actually wouldn't be. I was going to say you'd be surprised at how many times this happens, this little example I'm about to give, but I don't think you would be. So no, many I wouldn't times. be at all because it happens all the time. I get guys yeah. and landowners on properties I go to, come check my food plot out. It's about an acre, and I look at this, I'm like, I'll give you maybe, maybe a half. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I've had people be like, oh, this is, I've, I've got a, a field over here. I think it's like four acres. Like, it's an acre and a half. Like, yep. not, we're not even coming close to two acres. We're talking an acre and a half. Or, yep. or yeah, but it's it, absolutely wild. But tools like OnX make that super, super easy. Just pull up your phone and trace the field. Or yep. trace where you want the field to be. And then, boom, uh, very, very easy after that. Are the tools that we use important? I've, I've heard before um, that, you know, you obviously, you, you don't want to use a rusty shovel. Or you don't want to throw it in a rusty bucket when you're pulling these soil samples. Is that important at all? Is that something you take into consideration? Or it's just like, just use what you got? Um, I say for the most part, just use what you got. The reason, the reason they tell you not to use something like that um, you're talking about rusty shovel or something like that, is if you get a soil sample that is going to have um, zinc or iron 
uh, pulled from that sample, those will come back skyrocketed way high, and it's it's just because they're contaminated. But from the, the P&K standpoint, the pH standpoint, you're not going to have too much level of error from that. So I would say for the most part, I usually use a plastic, bu- uh, a, a plastic uh, bucket, you know, mineral bucket or, you know, hard hardware store bucket or something like that. And then, you know, I just have a, a, a spade shovel that's, you know, kept in, in my car so it's not rusty. But, yeah, something like that will, will do just fine to serve the purpose. Like I said, you need that starting point to then make decisions from there. And, like, you know, you're, you're going to know if something's out of whack because, you know, whoever you're getting recommendations from, like a state agency, they're going to say something's off with this sample if, if that happened as far as contamination goes. Yeah. Yeah. And a couple other things that I think are worth mentioning, you know, number one, that that can contaminate and throw your can throw your uh, sample off if you're testing for some of those other things, which for a food plot, you're probably not anyway. Uh, Other things, though, that can make your test a little bit wonky. You send too little in. You want to make sure you got enough. You want to make sure you got a good representation of the field, you know, picking from different spots in the field. Um, Gosh, I had another one and I I'm totally blanking on it. What else is important? Mitch, you're you're the expert here. I'm not the expert. What what else uh, is important when it comes to taking these tests? I, honestly, I think you 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 got the the majority of it. I mean, I usually send them in a in a paper bag and not zipping it up. But in all reality, we've sent them in Ziploc bags. And for for the basic tests that we are tra- we are talking about, that is all you need. Now, when you start getting into some of the specialty tests. Um, there are certain conditions that they want you to preserve that sample in, mostly because of nitrogen and mo- and mobile nutrients. Um, we're not worried about that right now. We're we're that's that's you know class 300, class 400 in my mind. You know, 101 is let's get the basics right. Um, yeah. So so yeah. Awesome. So when it comes to your samples, when you, uh, this is this was the next one that I was going to talk just a little bit about and see if it's important when you're sending it off. Uh, not necessarily because it'll throw off your results, but because of the lab that you're sending it to. Is it important to dry your samples? I've always dried my samples when when I get them home, spread them out, kind of give them a little bit of time to air out. Is that important at all, or am I just adding work? You're just adding work. Uh, just we, adding work to our it. turnaround sample is very quick. Um, okay. You know, because you're doing work that the lab's going to do. So the process when they take it to the lab, they're going to they're going to go out, they're going to empty that out onto a tray. It's going to go into a kiln and 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 it's going to go through a drying process and they mesh it down and they they put their extractions in and things and then when they do the organic matter calculation it goes into a kiln and dries it and they weigh those samples. So, yeah, th- that whole process is is not re- really necessary. It makes it miserable if you take a mud sample. I mean, that's not fun and it really isn't isn't <laughs> Real, it you, you question if it's going to be a good representation because it's just slimy muck. But I mean, if if it's you know average moisture in the soil, uh, mix that in a bag, send it to the lab. I'm not really that concerned about that. Okay, awesome. That's super helpful. That'll save uh, that'll certainly save me some time in the future because I've always heard, hey, you need to get that dried out before you send it off. I I want to know next. So you get your soil test back, right? You're you want to do what's what's best for for the location. Does mm-hmm. Does the results of your soil test ever influence, or do the results of your soil test ever influence what you plant in a specific field? Like, are there ever times that you're like, hey, you know, this field is way wonky. We need to do something different here. Or, hey, this field is really dialed in, so we can maybe use this seed that's a little bit more finicky, but we can get away with it here because it's going to grow well. Yeah, it, it, that's a great point, Josh. It absolutely can. You know, there are thing, there are plant species out there that are way more hardy than others. Um, let's just let you know. The first things that come to my mind would be things like oats, cereal rye, tillage radish. If you throw those out on your driveway and they get rained on, they're going to start to grow. And you know, they're they're very hard. They're they're very adaptable to things like low pH. They've got kind of a buffer against that aluminum kind of eating at the roots. Um, you know they can they can handle low fertility. It might not grow to optimum uh, tonnage, but it it'll at least grow. You know I wouldn't want to start something like a perennial plant. I wouldn't want to start um, clovers, alfalfas, something that desires a pH with an optimum. Uh, you know f- for our area that's going to be a six point five to a seven, close to that neutral neutral zone, and it's going to want a pretty good chunk of potassium because in order to 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 get that 
that that maximum biomass and get that perennial crop started. You know, perennials are pretty slow. It's going to want those things in optimum, or else they're just not they're not going to work. You know, and and if you don't know what plants we're we're talking about, or you don't know which ones are going to be the best for this situation. You got to keep in mind multi-species blends do a great job of working it out on their own. When you put a multi-species plant out, the the more tolerable ones are going to sustain and the ones that are less uh, less uh, tolerable, they're, they're, they're going to phase out. They're going to die. But it can have influence. I typically, like when I make food plot recommendations, um, that might be a consideration for me, depending on the on the property and stuff. But usually, it's based on the things we were talking about earlier: the longevity of the property, the goals of the property, and then orienting what food do we need on this property, where does it need to be positioned, and then how do we use that to to maximize our hunts. And then that's going back to addressing those deficiencies that we might have on that sample. Yeah. So a lot of it just boils down to to the property specifically. And whether or not you've got a really long-term approach um, to that food plot, or whether or not it's a, you know, one-year lease that hey, you may you very well may not have it let next year, and so, you know, things are a little bit different. Uh, sure. So, talk to me a little bit about uh, you know some of your favorite things to plant. I mean, uh, I know what we like down here in the south. You're in PA. Things could be a little bit different. Uh, what are some of your favorite, I guess, blends or individual, you know. Uh, crops that you like to grow for deer uh, because they just seem to get it done <laughs> you know that's a moving target um i have you know different locations tried different things i have done you know monocultures of one specific you know one specific species i've done multi-species i've done somewhere in between and each and every property is a little bit different it seems as though the, the food available in the surrounding area, the, the, the carrying capacity of the land, all those things come into that consideration. So it's really, really hard for me to say this is the one way. You know, I've got a, you know, there, there's, there's seed blends out there that I, I, I like and, and have worked for me. I don't think there's any one right or wrong way. I will tell you, um, I have started using more and more diverse blends because um, what what I'm learning in in my my job and career, and then also learning from you know other people who tinker with this in the food plot side of things, is the more diverse your mixes are with the appro- uh, appropriate ratios of different types of of plants. So you know legumes mixed with grasses, mixed with forbs, stuff like that. The more you uh, blend diversity, the more you get a little bit of synergies synergism within those plants and kind of working together um not just from uh you know from a maximum tonnage standpoint but also from a nutrient use standpoint the way nutrients exchange from the soil into those plants so you know i've kind of gone the route of i want to have regardless of the situation i'm going to have as much different type of forage as possible because everything's going to peak at a different time I want as much of it as possible because those two things are going to keep the longevity during the hunting season, and they're also going to keep, uh, they're hopefully going to have a, a tonnage aspect to keep them there as long as possible. Yeah. So, all right, Mitch, let's, let's, I'm going to put you in a, in a, uh, in a fake scenario here. We're going to do a little bit of a case study. Uh, I've put you on a property in Hill Country, and you have to plant one thing. You don't get to you don't get to have a blend, you don't get to do a whole lot of uh, mixing and matching. You get one thing. What's that one thing going to be? Um, you know, I, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to put a monkey wrench into this just to say, um, I'm I am a Mid Atlantic boy, a Northeast boy. So I mean, if you told me to do this in Georgia, I really wouldn't know. I'd consult with somebody like yourself. Um, but if you were gonna do that to me just as some random place in my neck of the woods in the northeast, you know, a great, you know, 200, 300-mile radius. Probably, I would say clover. Um, okay. Having, yeah. you know, a three, four, five-way mix of different perennial clovers, to me, is extremely hard to beat. I've, I've seen it in low deer density, high deer density, I've seen it early, mid, late season, depending on the property. It just is a crop that really, really shines. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I like annuals, and I, I'm saying this, I hardly have any clover in any of my food plots anymore, almost none, um, which, which is kind of counterproductive to what I just said. But if I had to pick the one, <laughs> man, clover's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a really good answer. So, um, and, I, and I'm glad you pointed out it's going to vary for different for different places, right? I think, you know, and at our family place back back in Alabama, a little bit further south, a good bit further south than where I'm at right now, Buck forage oats are going to win all day, every day, because I know they grow okay. on they grow on pavement, and uh, yeah. that's basically what we've got down there to to to, to grow stuff on. Uh, up here, though, in Georgia, I'm going to go with clover. Uh, I'm going to go with clover as well, uh, specifically like a Durana clover. Um, mm. Going to perform really, really well. And and I don't know about you, I hear a lot about you know the benefit of blends and you know, well, this specific thing is really attractive at this time of year. And then you've got the other ones kind of becoming just right, right. When this one's kind of losing some of its palatability and I get all of that, but Clover seems to be one of those things that if there's not a lot of competition in your area. So if you're in, uh, if you're not in ag ground and there's not a lot of other options as far as food uh, out there, Clover is going to perform really, really well for a very large chunk of the season. It's probably like going to be one of the most browse-resistant things as well in that situation too, Josh. That's, that's exactly right. And, it, you know, if you're not competing with, you know, soybeans in July, then, boy, clover is going to get hit in, in July. It, if you're not competing with, uh, you know, corn in, in November, your clover is probably going to be getting hit yeah. by corn or getting hit in, in November. So, um, yeah. Well, Mitch, anything that I'm missing when it comes to the soil sample piece, I mean – there's a lot of things that I have a lot of experience with and, and soil samples. Yes, I do, but, but less than others, especially when I'm talking to a guy who's a dadgum agronomist. So I feel <laughs> well, like, <laughs> I tell you what, let me go through some of the things that I think are the biggest fails or the biggest, um, o- or most overlooked things when it comes to soil samples. So I've been on, on two ends of the spectrum. Somebody gives me a soil sample and you know, it's really, really deficient and I have to try to guide them through how to fix it. The other end of the spectrum I've had many times is here, look at this soil sample and tell me what's wrong. And I look at the sample and go, well, everything's in optimum. And they'll go, well, it doesn't grow. It's terrible. It's this, it's that. And I'll go to the site and you're, I look at the site and say, okay, well, the reasons it's not growing are nothing to do with nutrients. Um, you have a very, very narrow food plot that's planted east to west. So it's completely covered by deciduous trees. It's not getting sunlight. And plants need water. They need sunlight. And, and they need oxygen. And if you're lacking sunlight, you're going to lack plant growth. Um, another one, too. If, uh, if you go to take your soil sample and you can't get your soil probe or your shovel in the ground, you know, I'm, I'm over 200 pounds. If I stand on a shovel and my shovel almost breaks, how do you think a root is going to go through that? You know, uh, compacted soil does not give room for oxygen to seep through. Plant life needs oxygen. So if you have a really, really compacted site, that's a problem you need to address. So, you know, don't overlook those uh, outside influencing type things. And then, uh, you know, the other thing we didn't really talk about at all, and I, I would be glad to touch base with you, is is just kind of addressing some of these things. So, like, you know, you get those results back, right? And you're, you're going to, I said, from a like a, a Penn State or, a, you, know, you know, some kind of land-grant university where you're at, um, they're going to give you product, right? But then we, we were talking in the beginning that there's companies out there that will say, well, hey, you can you can replace two tons per acre of limestone with this. Or your sample calls for this much potassium. Hey, instead of spreading all this bulk granular fertilizer, we can sell you this in a jug and it'll do the same thing. And understanding what, quote unquote, the same thing means uh, is is very hard, and yeah, you, you have to do some research yourself, and you also have to kind of ha- understand, and, and, and well, you have to you have to make a decision on who you trust in this situation. Like guys, uh, you know, Josh, guys work with you because you're an honorable, reputable person, and you're going to give them your best, unbiased decision, and, and you're not trying to sell anything. You're 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 selling what you believe is right and nothing more, and that's why people would want to work with you. And there are there are people like that out there in in companies that sell product too. There's also not. I mean, um, the, the easiest way for somebody to make money is to sell you a product that has a whole bunch of micronutrients in and, and call it this miracle 
uh, miracle jungle juice that you're going to put on your on your crops and it's going to make them grow all good. <laughs> it, it might give you some benefit. It's not going to give you long-term benefit, and it's not going to... Uh, it's going to be the quickest way for them to, to make money. So addressing things is a, is a big one. Yeah, man. T- tell tell me a little bit about that. I, I don't understand that jungle juice in a jug market enough to get what's going on there, right? So uh, I went straight from not doing soil sample or soil tests uh, and not doing things right to like trying to make sure I'm doing 100% correct all the time. So I'm super skeptical of, of those things. I saw a guy the other day posted on Instagram. He said, hey, I'm just getting done here in this food plot. Uh, I needed X amount of lime per acre. Rather than hauling all that lime back here, I decided to use this. I'm just going to spray it on, and it's going to be great. What the heck's going on there? Well, yeah, like I said, um, <clears throat> let's, I, I, let's... I, won't, I won't throw the brand out there unless you need me to. You don't need me. You don't need to do that because I have an idea who you're talking about, and uh, okay. you know that right. that specific product. If we're talking about the same one, there's nothing wrong with that product. It's a good product. It, it the the marketing that they are doing is not lying. What they what they are doing is they are creating an opportunity for hydrogen to displace and a carbonate to exchange, and therefore it's going to be at the plant. But it's at at a minuscule level and in a liquid form, and it's not really changing the soil so we're on the topic of lime let's stay there so you get a sample back i I said earlier ph is a logarithmic scale so a a ph of six is 10 times more acidic than a ph of seven ph of five is a hundred times more acidic than a ph of seven so when you get under a six and like i said i am talking kind of to my area but when you get under that you're you're starting to really have a, a major major impact on that so in order to fix that, you need carbonate. And we, we the two most common are calcium carbonate and magnesium carbonate, uh, mag, you know, limestones. And, you know, what happens is you get extra calcium from that application if you put calcium carbonate, but that carbonate displaces. It attaches to hydrogen, and, you know, it, it allows nutrient exchange to, you know, occur, you know, nutrients to be able to move through those plants. Um, if you're calling for two tons per acre, that's 4,000 pounds, two tons per acre of limestone, you know, that is a substantial amount of calcium carbonate going into that soil. Uh, another thing I'll mention too, calcium or the, the, the calcium lime is going to leach about one inch in the soil per year. So if you have a pH and a six-inch soil profile, that's a 5.8, it's going to take six years for it to get through it, that six-inch profile. So I'm very pro no-till, but one thing I, I I just did it on a new food plot the other week, and I recommend people a lot of time is if you're starting up, don't be afraid to break tillage out to incorporate limestone and get it within the soil profile as much so it breaks down and helps neutralize that soil. But uh, yeah, the the juice uh, that you're talking about, Josh, the, somebody put it really simple to me, and I don't need to get into the technicality of it too much. But uh, an agronomist in one of our extension agency offices one time said to me, he goes, you're trying to replace um, 2,000, 4,000 pounds of, you know, 90% calcium carbonate equivalent product um, with, uh, you know, a five gallon jug of product. He goes, the numbers don't add up. It's not that potent. Mm. It's not moving through the soil. So, yeah. Uh, the, the liquid stuff is typically a short-term Band-Aid solution. It's a great way to start plants up. You know, young seedlings, you know, have so many external stresses. So if you if you utilize a product like that, um, it's going to be a, a little bit, you know, insurance policy to get those young plants started. Uh, healthy soil does the same thing. I mean, if you put anything into, into a depleted system, you're going to see a response. But if it's not depleted, you're not going to see the response. Yeah, man, that's a that's a really good point. That's a really really good point. Well, man, this is this has been a wonderful conversation. I hope folks have taken a lot away from it. You recently have done a lot of talking about food plots uh, on your podcast as well. Folks can go check out some of that. In fact, uh, we've had some of the same people on. So I've had Dr. Grant mm-hmm. Woods on. You had him on not too long ago. Yeah. Uh, and I've got Al from uh, Vitalize Seed, right? Uh, yeah, because you yeah. introduced me to the guy. So I wanted to talk about uh, seed blends, and I was like, well, who should I? Who should I get? And uh, you yeah, work with Vitalize Seeds uh, uh, with your podcast, correct? 
Absolutely, yeah. Hard to hard to beat Al. He's a great guy, extremely knowledgeable and and driven. You know, that's one reason why I like working with him so much. Is the guy is just a is thirsty to learn more. He's he's so that's that's really cool. But yeah, very knowledgeable guy for for your show for and for your listeners. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to having him on next week. Uh, Mitch, man, tell people where they can find you. Yeah, uh, Pennsylvania Woodsman podcast. We are on the Sportsman's Empire Network, just the same as the How to Hunt Deer and the Wisconsin Sportsman. And uh, you can catch me on Instagram at Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. Uh, you can also, you know, I have an email at, uh, it's uh, PA, it's uh, the letters PA, not Pennsylvania, PA Woodsman Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach out to me there. Um, I'm always willing to help and uh, uh, willing to look at soil samples and talk food plots and help people however possible. Awesome. Well, man, I really appreciate it. So for those of you who don't know, uh, when I am thinking about food plots uh, for a, a client when I'm doing, um, doing a design on a property, I'm bugging Mitch. I had a particularly challenging case not too terribly long ago, and I was going back and forth with Mitch. I'm like, I need, I need to call in the pros on this one because this is, this is beyond uh, – what I, you know, just go with what we would normally go with. This, it was a really, really challenging case. But anyway, man, thanks for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Folks, if you haven't already, go listen to the Pennsylvania Woodsman podcast. It launches every Friday morning on the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. Thanks for coming on, Mitch. Thanks for having me, Josh. That's all for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcast. If you could leave us a five-star review, I would very much appreciate that. While you're at it, you can follow along with my outdoor adventures on Instagram at How to Hunt Deer. That's also the best way to get a hold of me. Suggest topics that you want to hear, guests you want to hear from, or questions that you'd like me to explore on the show. Big thanks to our partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, and Onyx. Please go support the brands that support this show and help me bring you great content each and every week. If you're looking for more outdoor content, check out the sportsmansempire.com where you're going to find my other podcast, The Wisconsin Sportsman, as well as a ton of other awesome outdoor podcasts.